Welcome, I'm Moshe Ferber. And I am Ariel Munafon. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast, a podcast about security architecture. Hello everyone, another episode of Silver Lining. Uh, how are you, Moshe? Perfect, good morning, Ariel. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, we are still in the COVID time and uh, have a great uh, uh, guest uh, with us, uh, Ofer. How are you, Ofer? Good, thank you. How are you guys? Very good, very good. Ofer Maor, uh, currently CS, uh, sorry, CTO and founder for Mitiga, company that is doing uh, cloud incident response services, that is correct? Yes. Yeah, uh, well now Ofer for many years has been active in the community, is doing OWASP, uh, border, Israeli border for a couple of years. He's been uh, also founder for Hactics, which was sold to EY. Right, I'm correct. Indeed. Uh, so he has a very uh, impressive reputation and uh, he's with us to talk about some cloud incident response. But first of all, Offer, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Thank you, Moshe. Thanks for having me here. Um, so as you've mentioned, I've, I've spent most of my career in the software security space. I'm about 25 years in the industry. Um, and I've been to Imperva in its early days. I founded Hactics, which was an application penetration testing company, as you mentioned, Salty Y. And following Hactics, I started another company called Seeker Security, which okay. we actually spun out of Hactics, which was the first IS solution in the market. And that was acquired by Synopsys in 2015. And I spent the last four and a half years in Synopsys, uh, helping them build the entire portfolio of application security testing. Um, and about a little under a year ago, I left uh, to start a new company. Miniga. Um, and I decided to move just a little bit away of the software security space into the cloud security space because, well, first they're connected, but secondly, I think there is a real revolution going on right now. Um, I, I mean, everybody's talking about cloud transition, of course, but it's happening even faster than what we've seen. And it looks like security is becoming an ever-growing challenge in this space. Mm-hmm. So you founded Mitiga, and uh, give us a couple of words about the, the service itself. I mean, how do you do it? So uh, what we're doing in Mitiga is a combination of service and technology to provide incident response and readiness in the cloud. Uh, and we're building a platform to manage your incident response in the cloud. And basically, what we see is that if you look at a lot of the incident response services market space, it hasn't been disrupted in a long time. It's a very... Um, simple service, you know, they bring in the team with the suitcase and the suits and, and they do incident response. Most of the expertise in the space is in endpoint and servers and, and all the legacy on-prem stuff. But the, the attacks are moving to the clouds, right? We see that. We see over 30% of incidents now happening in the cloud. And so we're building a whole new set of skill set. We're building a whole new set of technology stack to support incident response in the cloud. And we've already been quite active handled over 10 incidents since we started the company, uh, mm-hmm. large-scale incidents. And uh, so it's an interesting ride. Yeah, it's a very interesting ride. I've been, uh, I, I've been seeing the, the problems with forensics in the cloud in the last couple of years, trying to see people taking old-school methodologies, like you need to be with physical control of the server and trying to put them in the <laughs> cloud. And, uh, it, and it really doesn't work. So I'm really happy that you're trying to uh, change this uh, change this market behind the scene i mean how does it work you have like some kind of security operating center with analyst but how do you analyze the data i mean what do you give you provide do you give your customers something to install what 
So we we connect to their cloud interfaces, right? So you, we have scripts that either the customer runs or we run that basically allow us to get the data, the log data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of what we do um, before, ideally with customers we engage with before they had an incident, is to work on the readiness. Because what you see is that for a lot of customers, their cloud logs are not configured well. Their retention is very short. Um, they just don't log tons of things. And then when there's an incident, it's very hard to investigate that. So we have a collection of capabilities that allows us to test how the customer is doing for readiness to help them fix that and to collect the data that we need either before an incident happens or if we're called in, then after it happens to find all the data that we can and, and get it in. Okay, so basically the first fa- phase is always preparation. So you need to prepare the customer for some kind of a common base. Yes, and I think f- for me, w- when we started Midiga, the whole readiness concept was uh, very apparent. I think there is a market um, uh, maturity that is still happening. Probably if I tried this three years ago, we could never pull this off. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we see now, more and more customers have been breached. More and more customers have gone through some sort of incident. If you talk to insurance companies, statistics are talking that almost 30% of their customers call in the policy uh, in a year. So not all, not all um, make an actual claim because you know, the deductible may be high, but 30% talk to their insurer mm-hmm. about a security incident, meaning it's, it's large enough. And that's an amazing number. Mm-hmm. And so we think now is the time for customers to start understanding that in addition to all the prevention and detection mechanisms they're putting in, they really have to start worrying about readiness for an incident, their resiliency. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, one thing, are you also responsible for the detection or the customer? So they, they have the own detection mechanism. They call it once they detect something. Yes, we do help some of our customers improve their detection process, uh, get their SOC up to speed on, on cloud playbooks and, and things like that because most of them have zero capabilities. But we're not here to replace your SOC and your detection. You know, that's... There are a lot of players in this space, and, and we leave. Okay, so you're focusing on the post-incident uh, service. Yes. And, okay. and, and even when the companies that you help them, uh, uh, it's after that they, they call you. You, you. If someone at the beginning wants to uh, a detection or something like this, you say, okay, I, I am ready to check what you have, but not uh, not doing really the job. Yeah, we're, we're not offering a managed SOC service. I, I think this market is very, very crowded right now. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, there are a lot of good players in this market. And I think when you when you build a new company, mm-hmm. part of, of that is focusing on a problem that's not currently solved. And I think managed SOC is, for the most part, solved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we can discuss the effectiveness of this. <laughs> uh, definitely the offering exists. Yes. Okay. So the goal here today is talk about some incident response incident that you witnessed, that you've seen in your own eyes, with, uh, uh, and it would be interesting to talk about them uh, and analyze them. So uh, first of all, I've seen a, a press release from your end, or from uh, Mitiga, uh, about some kind of a malicious AMI, Amazon Senior image you found on the, on the Amazon Community Store. Yes. Tell us a little bit about this incident and uh, what uh, research did you did on top of it. So luckily, this was uh, identified as part of a resiliency test we did for a customer, big financial institute. Obviously, they have a lot of legacy technologies, like every large financial institute. Um, and as we were examining their cloud infrastructure, we came across a 2008 Windows machine running on their cloud environment. Um, we did some test simulation 
again, what we do, we do it to see that their logs are working, all that stuff. But as we started looking at the machine, we saw that there are some irregularities. Some things were behaving odd. We started digging into it, and we find a crypto miner on that machine. Okay. Now, crypto miners on AWS machines is not a new attack vector in any way. Um, we've seen them being installed through hacking techniques, through various techniques. But what we discovered on this one, that what happened was the customer had downloaded the AMI from the AWS community AMI portal. Um, they, they needed a 2008 machine. There are no longer official 2008 machines because that's not supported anymore. Well, this is what led them to the community. <laughs> and, and the thing is, I don't know if you've ever seen the AWS AMI search, but there is a very weak indicator that this is a community AMI versus a marketplace AMI. If you're not very familiar with the differences and the concepts, it's very easy for you to get to mistake because you search 2008 and that oh. is the first one. Mm -hmm that shows up. It will list you the AMIs from the machine store and it will list you AMIs from the community. And it's so, all, uh, sometimes it would list the community before the store because they're better match your search term. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when you know what to look for, there is this little icon that you can see that <laughs> says that it's, it's a marketplace AMI. But if you're not really um, sensitive to that, you're just going to say, oh, oh, 2008, look, there's a Windows 2008 SP1 server, click, done. Um, and this AMI was there for five years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there was a built-in crypto miner, so you don't need to hack anything. You don't need to get into anybody's account. It's just there, and it works, and it builds your AWS uh, account and gets the cryptocurrency to the attacker. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> five years, you say? Five years, this AMI was there. Yes, it's now been taken down, of course, after we reported it to Amazon. There's a number of uh, downloads that they had of this? They don't show that. Mm -hmm. So there's one of the things I find troubling with, with the AWS community side, there's no detail on the AMI, not who's the publisher, mm -hmm. not how many downloads, no customer rating. So if you're good with naming and search optimization on AMI, you can get your AMI up. And there is no indication that it's a malicious or bad one. Um, you know, if Amazon would give us this AMI as a community, but here's the publisher, mm -hmm. that would be a good start. Yeah, yeah. Like, like as they do with the Amazon machine images, where you can uh, yeah. see the signing and you can see everything. Yeah, but the idea is the community images that yeah. you never know how, uh, what to make them. So uh, out of this, you made entire research over uh, stuff that can happen from uh, marketplaces and... Yeah, I mean, if you look at, at the AWS AMI marketplace, there's zero control over what goes into AMIs. And, you know, it's written somewhere in the Amazon disclaimer that there's no control. But really, what we see is that a lot of DevOps people would use these AMIs. Um, and you don't know what can be on them, right? There could be crypto miner, could be malicious code, something that hacks into your network because mm. it now runs in your VPC that you took it in. Um, and that, and another incident, which we've went through and we'll talk about in a minute, got us to start looking into this whole notion of third-party marketplaces. Because, you know, if I put my security hat aside, marketplaces for cloud SaaS providers is the coolest thing ever, right? Mm. You get your Salesforce, you get your Slack, you get your Office 365, GitHub, GitLab, and they all got tons of apps. You just click, click, and <laughs> you're in. Um, 
but you don't know what's what's going on there. We just set up a, a new um, call center for for Mitiga, and the call center wants to send us the messages when people call, and they say, "Well, we have a Slack app that gives you everything into Slack." It's like, "Cool, great, I love Slack, right?" And they send me a link to an app that I need to approve. And then you look at the app, and first it says, this app is not verified by Slack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it says, this app needs read and write permission to all channels. It's like, okay, I don't think I want to get this app into my Slack workspace, but how many people are aware of this as I am? How many people would have approved this app that mm -hmm. even if it's non-malicious, I don't know if it's secure, if it can't be hacked? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, interesting. I, I'm surprised of a couple of things. First of all, the the calling center that can send you all the information to Slack, which is impressive. It is impressive. <laughs> we we ended up setting an email field that then goes into Slack on mm -hmm. our side. <laughs> okay, and that's the solution. So what uh, what else did you find on the marketplaces? So we had a really interesting uh, incident. We got a call from a customer that says their uh, GitHub repo was hacked, and okay. Interesting. And so the first concern, of course, if you ever get your GitHub repo hacked, other than the leak of IP, is that probably your developers store secrets in their code. They shouldn't, mm -hmm. but they do it anyway. Um, and so we needed to spend a lot of effort to going through all these secrets of all their cloud services. They were working with all the cloud providers, pretty much, um, and going through each and every one of them and doing sort of an incident response, but without being sure there was an incident. Right, because we didn't know if they used the, the secrets. But basically, we had to go and rule out access to any of their cloud providers with the secrets. Mm -hmm. um, but we also investigated what happened. And what happened was they were never breached, the customer that called us. Uh, one of the apps that one of their developers approved a few months earlier on the GitHub Marketplace, that was hacked. Mm -hmm. And so there was around April, there was a big uh, campaign, mm -hmm. a phishing campaign. Uh, Softfish that uh, attacked various GitHub users, and part of it was successful in attacking some of the bigger apps on GitHub. So, um, uh, unrelated to our incident, but at the same time, uh, Waydev was uh, hacked, um, mm -hmm. and through some of these accounts, they were able to access repositories of other customers. Because when you allow a GitHub app to access your code, because you want to do static analysis or, or version control or whatever you want your GitHub app to do, then it can have full read permissions. And so they got, uh, they did the phishing attack, they got the OAuth token to get access to the repos, and then mm -hmm. they started downloading repos one by one. Uh, one of the incidents that were published as a result of this was uh, the Dave.com. You're familiar with them, they're a fintech mm -hmm. company, Unicorn. Mm -hmm. uh, their repo was hacked through the WaveDev, Waydev. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, OAuth token, and they used that to release data of 7.5 million customers because they found one of the secrets mm -hmm. uh, in the code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, guarding those OAuth tokens seems to be our, the 2020 problem. Uh, <laughs> we don't know how to uh, guard <laughs> them. But uh, again, they uh, hacked into the GitHub. From my understanding, they just downloaded the repos. Uh, yeah. the repos. From the, the, I would expect that they would add their own little <laughs> plugin to this uh, repo. So first of all, they didn't hack GitHub. They hacked yeah. specific accounts through... By the way, they had, I, I don't know if you saw the phishing campaign, but it was really nice because they did phishing with 2FA. 
So even if you had 2FA, you know, we, we tell people, oh, put 2FA, mm -hmm. that protects you from phishing. That's, of course, not really true because what they did was real-time login. So they took your credentials, asked, used them immediately to log into GitHub, then got the request for the 2FA, asked you for the 2FA, and then used it to mm -hmm. log in and maintain an open session while they're downloading the code. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good phishing campaign. And then, um, yes, as you said, they used it to download uh, the repos. Luckily, um, in our case, I, I, I haven't been involved in the, in the research of the Wave one, but in our case, the company that they hacked didn't have write permissions, only mm -hmm. read permissions. So they were so, able to download them. Yes, but that was another concern, of course. We had to check that there's no chance that they maybe put a backdoor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember five years ago, maybe uh, one of those uh, popular uh, PC cleaning app, uh, PC Doctor or something like that, was yeah. eventually somebody hacked the source code and added uh, some uh, <laughs> Bitcoin mining into that. It's the perfect attack. We've been talking about mm -hmm. it for years. Hacking your repo, putting a backdoor, mm -hmm. you never know. <laughs> yeah, it also, even the company itself would be hard to, to find this. Yeah, interesting. Um, so um, that's about marketplaces and third parties, which is an, currently it's starting to be a big challenge. Everybody running third parties from your website all the way to your data center. Yeah, I, I, uh. I, I think, just one last word, if I look at how the market's uh, evolving and how attackers are learning new techniques, I expect the marketplace attacks to be the biggest attack for the next five years. This is going to overtake most of the attacks we know because the infrastructure attacks on the cloud, you know, the, the mm. public S3 buckets and all that stuff, as we mature, we'll see that declining. But this is so much harder to manage that I think it's going to be very, very big for the organizations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And everybody's starting to use third parties. I mean, you cannot run away with that and you cannot examine all your third parties because you want to be fast and innovate. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's the problem. I agree. Um, other attack vector, we talked about uh, another case that you had, Office 365, business email compromise. Yes, so, th so this, was, this is a very interesting case. Uh, we're still working on, on the last pieces of the investigation. Um, business email compromise is clearly not a new attack vector, uh, but we see a huge increase in it, and especially with Office 365. And, and I'll try to explain a little bit why, uh, but let me start with the beginning. We've been approached... Um, a short while ago uh, by uh, an attorney representing somebody who had a deal, multi-million dollar deal uh, that went sideways. And basically, as we got a little bit of details, that somebody was trying to buy a piece of collectible, a, a piece of rare art. Um, they were discussing with the seller over the internet for months and, and getting the details and negotiating and everything. And then they wired the money and then it was gone. Wired to, uh, okay. Yeah. And so we started investigating. And so um, as we're investigating, what we discovered that one of the intermediaries that got the deal facilitated in the beginning um, had their account broken into, mm -hmm. Office 365 account, probably. We, we are not sure how, but probably a phishing or, or whatever. And, um, and they started monitoring his account. He's somebody in the market. So they were monitoring his account for weeks until something happened. 
and th- they made the initial contact with the seller. This is amazing. This is amazing, yes. Yeah, no, the, the whole deal is amazing. And so um, they were monitoring it. Um, and then when the deal started facilitating, they uh, intervented. And they created two fake domains. Each uh, was a very similar domain name. We know that from phishing campaigns, you know, L, L instead of I, RN instead of M, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they created two campaigns. They also put a bunch of mail filters on the original mailbox so they can trap things that might get attention. And basically, all these weeks of negotiations were never done directly with the seller. So they, they intercepted this very early. And so the whole negotiation took place between uh, the buyer and the seller through the middleman. So they sent email to the fake domains. They used those emails as a template to send it to the real seller. And then the real seller sent back to the fake domains they used for, really? the, they used for the buyer. And then they edited that a little bit and so, back and so on. They helped facilitate the deal, get the price right, everything in place. Seems like they deserve some kind of percentage <laughs> being the middleman for this. <laughs> no, but I, I want to go again from the, when you started talking about, okay, in the end, they changed the account number in the email. So you In, no, they in r- the end, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But we're saying this entire process, they've been proxying the, yes. the email exchange? Yes, because they wanted to make sure they're in control of the communication, mm. right? It's not just the account. Maybe they'll say, let's call yeah. or, or something like that, right? When, when we got our investment funding, the, the VC called us on two different people on the phone to make sure the account number is correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, there, there was a case uh, a while ago of an Israeli startup that lost their investment money because of, of business email compromise. So mm-hmm. anyway, so, um, so they were part of this, the whole process. But even more amazing, even after the money, so, so clearly when, when they sent account details, they provided different account details. But, you know, the, the, the fraudulent account had to be in the U.S., otherwise it would be suspicious. Mm-hmm. So they wired the money to a bank in the U.S., and then they had to take the money out of that account. And um, they still kept communicating after the money was wired. Yes, it will take time to prepare the shipment. Well, and all that time, money was wired out of that account. Because they, needed, they wanted to stall things that the customer will not complain to the yes. banking. The, yes. Always the biggest part is how to take the money off the, se- off the banking system. Exactly. So this, is the, this is why they need to, to gain yes. more time. Okay. And so, um, it, so, so that's the story. It's a very you know, interesting story. Um, mm. But we've discovered a lot of interesting things as we're investigating it. So the first interesting thing is that the attackers are now using... Office 365 for the fake domains. And why are they doing it? Because Office 365 makes it much easier from a technological standpoint for them to look like the real domain, right? Mm-hmm. The real customer is using Office 365. So everything in the headers, instead of working hard, everything in the headers, mm-hmm. the look and feel of the emails, everything is there. Also, mm-hmm. when you set up a domain in Office 365 and get... All the domain stuff, right, right, your, your SPF and DKIM and DMARC and all the mail-related records, then your score is probably, with spam filters, is, is probably going to get a little bit better than if you just set it up on a weird IP mm-hmm. versus if it's on Office 365 yeah, yeah. IPs. It's a, it's a way to avoid the spam detectors. Yes, and so they're hacking Office 365 accounts. 
and then they're setting Office 365 fake domains. And the whole ecosystem is very, very seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we started investigating it, we started identifying some uh, footprints of the attackers. And as we started looking at them, we found initially another 10 domains that were undergoing an attack by the same group. And as we expanded the search a little bit, we found 150 organizations that are currently being attacked by this method. For the first 10, we can be sure it's the same group. For the rest, you know, we mm-hmm. think so, but uh, same TTPs. But we're now in the process of notifying these organizations. We've been in touch with the FBI and the Secret Service and with Microsoft. Um, but it, it's just an amazingly large campaign. And we know they've already done over $15 million that we know of in mm-hmm. this campaign, probably a lot more. Yeah. Wow. But uh, let me go through the details again. You found for, for the first time like 10 phishing sites, I mean, yeah. 10 domains, malicious, then 150. How can you say, uh, how can you guess from the malicious domain who is the customer that, how many customers or which customer is oh, the, being affected? The, the, ma- the malicious domain very, are always close. similar to. So uh, you can manage to track the real domain yes. uh, on top of this. Yes. Yeah. And we've seen all these domains, again, for, for this attack campaign, all these doma- domains were registered through Wild West, uh, which is a GoDaddy subsidiary. Mm-hmm. So again, we, we just see some patterns in how it was registered, how the Office 365 is set up, um, that we can say that it looks very similar. Similar. Yeah. similar. Interesting. Um, couple of things to avoid. Uh, how do you avoid this? I mean, this uh, again, uh, on top of the regular stuff, don't click links and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but don't, don't click links, you know. To it doesn't everybody. really work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's some things to avoid. So one of the things, as I mentioned, we've noticed is that uh, they set up uh, forwarding rules. So there are two types of forwarding rules that we've seen. Uh, first one was in the early stage which was a generic forwarding rule of all the emails, basically so they could monitor this without logging in all the time. Um, and that helped them identify when something happened. The second one was a forwarding rule that forwarded and deleted mails that were from the original uh, buyer. So one of the things to do is to look uh, actively, monitor if you have forwarding rules, because mm-hmm it's much harder to run this attack without forwarding rules. Uh, and so we recommend our customers to look for forwarding rules. Again, even though I mentioned in the first part of this that uh, the 2FA may not be the ultimate solution, probably would have made it much harder. So customers that still don't use 2FA, you know, I can't stress this enough mm-hmm. um, to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so forwarding rules, we've seen this in uh, other uh, places, it's always this. It's authentication, that's pretty much and, it. I and, mean, and again, all this manual work, call, call instead of getting the bank transfer. Yeah, of course. I, I think getting, you know, when, when we look at the status of email security, unless you set up a PGP encryption system or, or other signature system, use other means to verify account numbers for sure. Um, and lastly, and again, this is, for this, but also phishing, um, there are services that monitor fake domains that are similar to yours and continuously look for them. Uh, they're probably not cheap, so they're mm-hmm. not going to be easier for cases like ours where it was mostly medium-sized organizations. Um, 
But yes, f- for sure, for large organizations, strongly recommended to continuously monitor for for fake domains. You mm-hmm. usually get it in the threat intelligence feeds. Now this is part yes. of what they do. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very okay. interesting. Very, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you for a great talk. Anything uh, you want to add on top of this? No, it's been great being here. Um, I think we live in in very interesting times in in this space. I think you know if if I take this and and go back to when I started in software security, application security when I was young, I think we're just in the very first days of cloud attacks. Mm-hmm. I think I cannot even imagine all the different sophistication and ideas of attackers that we will see in the next five to ten years. It's going to be a very interesting ride for anybody in our business. Um, to see and follow and and follow these trends and try to find solutions to them because the customers are moving everything to the cloud and and we need to help them defend themselves good luck for you and good luck for me to as well thank you keep protecting our assets thank you very much and uh, thank you to all our, all our listeners bye 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 bye